Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com, where you'll also find the mailing list and links to following the show on Twitter and Facebook and all kinds of good things. This week's interview was recorded at the Rotary Club of Albany, New York, which may seem like an odd place to record an episode of the Jazz Session. I'm, in fact, a member of that club. I'm a Rotarian. I was a Rotary Exchange student about 20 years ago and uh, am now a, a proud member of Rotary, which is an amazing organization that does a lot of good in the world, uh, including right in your own local community. So if you want to check it out, you can visit rotary.org for more information. My guest on this episode is pianist Lee Shaw, who lives right here in Albany, although she's played all over the world. And we're going to start off with a track from her most recent album called Blossom. Welcome to the Jazz Session. My guest this week is pianist Lee Shaw. We're recording live from the Rotary Club of Albany. Ladies and gentlemen, Lee Shaw. Thank you. Thank you so much. Lee, it is such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for it's being on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Jason. Now, we were just watching uh, examples from uh, not your most recent album, which is Blossom, but from the one before that. Would you tell us uh, what we just saw and where you were when you were playing? We were in a wonderful place in Germany. Ger the topography of Germany, in some ways, very closely resembles the topography of New York State. And I, having spent so much time riding trains and looking at what appeared to be almost manicured uh, countryside, I was impressed by that. But this CD, I mean, this 
videotape was made in a town called Reutlingen. We were there. We've been in Europe the past three successive years, and each time we were in Reutlingen, one night, then the second time we were there for a week, and the owner didn't tell me that he was going to call it the Leeshaw Jazz Festival, <laughs> which was very nice. The trio played uh, two nights alone, and the rest of the time we played with young German musicians, whom we met the afternoon of the concert. Uh, but that was fun. And the third time we were there, we also played with German musicians, and I think that will become our next CD, the tape of that. And Reutlingen is right next to a remarkable town called Tübingen. Tübingen is a town of universities. And the owner of the club in Reutlingen, Tobias Fessel, took us to this thousand-year-old city. We climbed and climbed and climbed. There was a church at the top and a castle at the top. Remarkable how, unlike a time here in Albany when old buildings were not valued at all, these buildings are a thousand years old, and they all work, and they're all occupied by businesses. So now the we, we I'm sorry I was just going to say the we who was in this video is yes, important too because uh, this this trio has played together enough now that it is really one organism. Will you talk about the two gentlemen who joined you in this trio? Rich Syracuse and I have been together almost 18 years, which is absolutely wonderful. Um, and he's the bass player. We should mention Rich. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, he is. Jeff Siegel joined us. Jeff has been with us about nine years. Jeff joined us after my husband, who was a drummer, uh, passed away. And we, it really is like a, a family or a very good marriage with respect and um, enjoyment. And we are very conscious of trying to support one another. It's probably the most ideal situation I could ever imagine. And how can I have been this lucky? To what do you ascribe the longevity of this trio? Because in this day and age, in the jazz world in particular, it seems to be one random combination of musicians after another in many cases. Not random, but certainly fluid combination of musicians. And yet you, the three of you, have managed to stay together, these particular three, for a decade, and the trio in general for several decades. Well, in a way, I'm so spoiled I'm used to this because my husband, until he became ill, and I played together for 30 years. And the last bass player we had was with us for 20 years. So I guess the examples that were set for me, I didn't feel it was so unusual. And yet, if I think about it, I realize that it is. Well, how does it happen? It's uh, like the gentleman who spoke about having met his wife. You're attracted to something, and you want it to continue. And so you treat it as though it were, which it is, something very important with a lot of consideration and do you like this and, you know, getting to know one another. ¶¶ 
most recent album is called uh, Blossom, uh, recorded by the Lee Shaw Trio. And uh, one thing about this record uh, that I really like is it really focuses on uh, compositions by the members of the band. There are uh, two tunes by other people, but right. other than that, everything on it is by members of the band. Right. Can you talk a little bit about why you decided to focus uh, on original composition, which certainly you've done in the past as well? Well, for one thing, it is something an audience has n- not heard before unless they have heard us live. And we agreed that these were good tunes. We're constantly preparing new material and writing new material. And it just, the two CDs we did before consisted of standards, which are wonderful, and we're going back to standards, and there are eight million of those. That period of time let's say between 1920 and 1940, that 20-year period when radio, movies, phonograph, when that came about, I think most people in this country do not realize how rich we are to have that. It was quite different from any other music in the world. And these were artists. I'm reading a book right now by about Gershwin. It's this thick. Somebody <laughs> must have researched for years and years to get it right. And I am, I have, since I was, I fell in love with music when I was a little girl. And I want to know everything there is to know about it. I acquired a lot of books about composers and lyric writers. And I constantly refer to them because I guess in some ways I'm, I want to share the information. I want people to know what I know. So when I announce a, a standard tune, I usually talk about talk about the song or the songwriter or a story. This song was written in this time because, because. Now, it's no surprise that you're a jazz pianist because you grew up in a real hotbed of, of improvisation in small-town Oklahoma. But I Will did you, not. Uh, 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 <laughs> I did Tell not. me about that. I didn't hear jazz until I got to Chicago. Yeah, I'm, I was kind of making a joke. Uh, okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you responded to it much the same way everyone else in the room tends to respond to my humor. <laughs> That's totally fine. Uh, sorry. No. So, uh, I was being ironic. So, you grew up okay. in very small town Oklahoma, and how did right. you, let's talk about your, your progression into jazz. Uh, when, you said you started listening to it when you got to Chicago. Had you been playing piano uh, prior to that? I started studying piano when I was five years old. I remember the name of my first teacher. She was Dorothy Kuykendall, and she could play all of this odd music, uh, doll dance, that novelty music. And I thought the piano was the most wonderful thing in the world. I used to sit with my ear glued to the radio to hear the music, and I, it seemed to be easy to learn the melody and the words. And when I was about 10 years old, I started playing by ear. And this started because I played clarinet in the band. And on a band trip once, we stopped at a, in Oklahoma, and I think partly, mainly in the South, their place is called pig stands, and they serve pig sandwiches. And I stood by a jukebox and fed it nickels, learning the dipsy doodle, can da ba da da. I played it over and over and over so that when I got home, I could go to the piano and see if I could play it. And I could play it. 
with whatever limited vocabulary I had. And that was the beginning because I discovered at that point, I can do this. So that opened up a whole other world. Classical music I was still playing and continued until I damaged my hands. Um, let me see. Put me back on track. Will you, so will you... You started playing, and we, you, we've heard you were listening to things and picking them out on the piano, figuring out the melodies for yourself, right. figuring out the words from what right. you heard. Meanwhile, st- thank you. Meanwhile, uh, continuing to study classical music, and because I was a good sight reader, everybody in school who sang and did a senior recital or a recital wanted me to accompany, and I did, and I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And so I thought a place for me to be musically was as a professional classical accompanist and that's what I thought I was going to be for a long time I was a piano major in college the Oklahoma College for Women and had a had fabulous teacher I used to practice four or five hours a day trying to learn as much as I could as quickly as I could after I graduated from college I taught school for a year because I needed the money to go to Chicago. I had a scholarship at the American Conservatory to study with Edward Collins, who had been Schumann Heinz, a accompanist. He was a marvelous man. to Chicago, it sounds like life took a turn in another direction from the one that you no, expected. No, it took several years. It took several years for my little one dollar an hour I accompanied in vocal studios and also continued accompanying classical musicians. There was a marvelous singer from Oklahoma who had joined the American Conservatory in Chicago. His name was Bar Hill. This was at the time that Manati became famous, so I learned all of that music. And I remember the first jazz record I heard, it bowled me over. And because I'd learned to play by ear at such an early age, I had a huge repertoire of all of these songs written during that wonderful period. 
And so I thought to myself, do I really want to be an accompanist? There are other places maybe I can go. So I marched myself up to a booking agent signed and started working. My first job was in a bowling alley in Oak Park, Illinois. I had to ride an hour to get to work. Most of the places that I played were places where audiences were educated. There was one of my first gigs. Uh, Most of the clientele always were present for the uh, initial musical that was being done in New York City. And they would come back and say, do you know this? Do you know that? And I'd say, no, but ask me next week. And I'd know it. And I did. So I built my repertoire that way. And within a couple of years after I started, do you want me to go into such detail as I am? Well, what I want to go with it from here is to ask about... uh the kind of the introduction of improvisation and how you started to incorporate that uh, into your playing. I mean, it sounds like your early years, and I, I firmly believe this is true, that many kids can improvise. They don't sit down at the piano and think, what am I going to play? They just play whatever comes right, to them. Right, right, and they, right. almost, they almost unlearn that and have to relearn it. I'm interested and in your case how it worked. Regarding what you just said, most of the time a teacher, a piano teacher, will discourage that, and I think that's criminal. They should encourage it. I started working in clubs as a single, and the thing that I wanted more than anything was to work as was to be able to play as a trio pianist. And I met a bass, bassist who helped me quite a while. And I would <laughs> in Chicago we were working five nights a week. I think my gig was seven in the evening to one. I had one or two days off. I'd get up have breakfast, go to the piano and sit there until it's time to have dinner, eat, dress, and get ready to and go to work. Meanwhile, listening, uh, copying, trying to learn to transcribe, and I started studying with a man named Alan Swain, and after a year he said, goodbye, I can't really help you anymore. <laughs> and so... I would learn from musicians. One of my early dates was at Mr. Kelly's, this fabulous uh, supper club, Dinah Washington, Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday, right before she died, uh, Mort Saul was a comedian. So every night I was hearing all of this music, and I was being able to say to the musicians, what is this? How do you do this? How do you do that? And I had another couple of gigs like that where I would kidnap the pianists. I once baked a, a pie for Dave McKenna because <laughs> I asked him to teach me Chelsea Bridge by Billy Strayhorn. And he said, okay, I'll do it for you if you'll bake me a pie. He was on the road with Alcon and Zoot Sims, so there was nothing very homey about that, and I said, fine. I didn't know how to cook, but I figured it out and baked a pie and invited them all to my apartment for dinner, and he played it for me, and I taped it, and I learned it, and it's one of my favorite songs.
did you meet your husband? <laughs> uh, my husband was born in New York City, very precocious, when he was about 15 years old. He used to leave the family house in Forest Hills and go down to 52nd Street, the street that never slept, the street that was full of nightclubs. And on the, on the marquee or the sign outside, it would say, Dizzy Gillespie, you go inside. Dizzy Gillespie is at the club two doors down. There was such wonderful feeling among musicians then. They were so generous, and they were learning something new called bebop. And everybody wanted to hear everybody else. And Stan started playing when he was... Sorry to be so long about this, but I have to give you this background. Started studying drums when he was 10 years old. And this young kid walked into these bad places. There were lots of bad people there. And Ben Webster and uh, some of these other men were trying to protect him and keep the bad guys away from him. So it became Uncle Ben Webster. Uncle. And for the rest of their lives, Stan was in touch with them. He'd look at Max Roach and say, I want to play. Get off the bandstand. And sometimes Max would do that. So that was Stan's early background, far different from mine. Um, at one point, it, Stan was a snowbird, winters in Florida working, summers in New York working. He was booked into Aruba and became the social director. That was very easy for him. And one night, a, a patent attorney and an insurance man said, what is a nice Jewish kid like you doing sitting behind a set of drums? You ought to be in business. He listened and uh, arranged to come to Chicago. But before he came to Chicago, he stopped in um, Miami and said, do you know anybody in Chicago? What he meant was, do you know any musicians? in Chicago because his heart certainly was not in business and everybody that he spoke with gave him my name when he got to Chicago he went to the local music store who should I get in touch with about what's going on musically my name and one day he called and asked me to meet him at a coffee shop and during the daytime and I did this person sounded like a really hip hipster New Yorker scared me and I took a friend with me <laughs> he didn't know which one of us was me and I wanted to help he wanted to get an apartment I wanted to help him find an apartment so I called a friend and said I know you have some apartments and I have a friend who needs apartment, apartment an apartment so he said come on up I'm in my rose garden now but I'll go upstairs and change my clothes now this is, I had met him a week earlier, Stan, a week earlier. While my friend was upstairs changing his clothes, I looked at Stan and said, I'm going to marry you. <laughs> this is not the kind of, this is not my nature. This was absolutely, completely unpremeditated. And Stan looked as though he'd been struck, and I felt as though I had been, I wanted to, sink into the ground 
six months later, we were married. Wow. He started coming into the club where I was playing on weekends with a bassist and sat in. And it was understood that this, is, this was it. And I was very happy. Can you talk about the, the musical partnership and how, how, if in any way, it was impacted by the fact that you were also husband and wife? Louis Armstrong, who heard Stan, called him The Rock because his time was so good. He swung so much, and so Stan became known as Rocky. This was what I needed. I had no idea what time and swing were. And he used to yell at me on the way home every night after a a gig, you didn't do this, you didn't do that, you didn't do something else. And I was trying, learning, but I grew up playing classical music, and... I'm sorry I did this, but as I grew up, I turned my nose up at people like Bob Wills and the Texas, Texas Cowboys. Playboys. Playboys. I wish I had listened to some of that because now I'm learning it. Some of those tunes from Arkansans. Uh, but Stan was tremendous influence, and I started to play jazz in the early 60s. That was a terrible, the 60s and 70s. Jazz was in such trouble. The Beatles had arrived. The young people said, I don't want to listen to my father's music anymore. So jazz people lost their audience. We were living in Great Neck in New York. And working. sometimes we didn't know where next month's rent was coming from, but we managed to we managed, and Stan was a terrific salesman. We played the Village Vanguard. We played at the Half Note. We played at Birdland. We did the March on Washington, Martin Luther King. You played at the March on Washington? Yes, at the, so I the think Apollo we need to hear about Theater. That. At the Apollo no kidding. Theater. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about that. Okay. Um, it was, I think, during the week after the clubs in New York. What did we play? We played until two, maybe three o'clock in the morning. And we all knew that the March on Washington was being held at the Apollo Theater. So everybody, after they finished their gig, that's where they went, to Harlem. We were the only white group there. We were all three white, which was rather unusual. We usually worked with an Afro-American bassist. So were people uh, gathering at the Apollo, they were getting ready seated. to go to the march, no. or what was happening? So you were at the Apollo in New York City, and the march was in Washington, so I'm just trying to connect. This wa- I'm sorry, I said it wrong. Raising funds for the march on gotcha. Washington. Gotcha, okay, great. So the, the, uh, the Apollo Theater was full of people who came to hear the music. And we... Oh, it was everybody... All the musicians were there, and I think we played near the end, and we played Battle Hymn of the Republic. We got a standing ovation. They would not sit down. They wouldn't stop applauding. Part of it was because the music was good, and part of it was because here were three white people, and uh, so that was really wonderful.
I know you guys went where you were in Puerto Rico, you were in New York, you've been various places at various times. How did you end up here in, in Albany? We were on the road. We were signed to a booking agency. Uh, we spent we spent two months at, I want to say, Lake Wobegon is in my head, but that is not where we were. This was just outside. It was in Wisconsin, where all the that great football team was. Green Bay? Yes, yes, yes. And uh, we were there for two months through this agent. We were in Milwaukee for t- ten weeks. They sent us everywhere. And there was a booking at in this area on Route 9. It was called the Diplomat Motel. It later became Coca's. We were booked there and held over and held over. Then we were at the Golden Fox and held over and held over and held over. We were at the Jamaica Inn and held over. And by now, it's, let's see, by now it's midsummer or the beginning of the summer. And Stan said, this is a great place. The universities, the symphonies, the jazz, there was a lot of jazz activity here. So many artists. It was, a, And the beauty of the country was just wonderful. And we went home to Great Neck one weekend and the landlord called and said I'm doubling your rent and we thought that was a very good time to move <laughs> so we did we came here and um, the next in a very short time we bought a house where I still live on uh, the Mohawk se- River it seems like uh, living here in Albany has not not in any way disconnected you from the larger jazz community because you still you're performing constantly, you're traveling, you're, and you've performed with everyone. In well, yes, we, we did that. We were in Europe <laughs> for nine weeks in the 80s. We also did a lot of concerts in Oklahoma. Our first record was made uh, in Oklahoma. And then my husband became ill. It was a debilitating condition called peripheral neuropathy, which robbed him of his motor skills. And uh, so he stopped playing because he had to. And about that time, Rich and I met. And uh, we worked as a duo for quite a while. And I couldn't work with another another drummer. So Rich knew Mike D'Amico, fabulous guitarist, who's now with the Brubeck Brothers. Mm -hmm. So we were together about three years. And then realizing that Stan would never be able to play again. Uh, Rich knew Jeff, so Jeff Siegel came with us. Finally, Lee, I want to ask you, there, there's such a rich tradition of, of the piano trio in American music. Uh, what is it about that combination of piano, bass, and drums that, that makes it so special? What, what has it made it almost the hallmark sound of jazz in America? Nobody ever asked me that before. That's a very interesting question. But in a way, a piano is an orchestra. So you can have you can have just the string section, or you can have just the, a clarinet or an oboe, single finger, or you can have the orchestra. So the, it offers so many possibilities. I'd never thought of that before. Uh, so... 
the possibilities which an orchestra could offer if a piano is playing single finger line and the bass player is playing a line then you only have two musical voices I mean two melodic voices moving then you add drums and drums can be anything then the piano can be you know the you can play 20 notes so I I think it's the great sonic variety that it offers and that sonic variety is uh, in great display on Lee's new album, Blossom. Uh, she's also got uh, many previous albums that I highly recommend. It's been, uh, it's been such a pleasure. We're so lucky in Albany to have you here. And I, I really oh, uh, thank you that you were here. We're today. lucky to be here. And I think I'm one of the luckiest people I have ever known. <laughs> I'm doing what I love the most. And I'm learning. And I just started going to the gym three times a week <laughs> to make sure that I'm going to do this for a long, long time. That's three more times Thank than you. I go. Ladies and gentlemen, Lee Shaw. Thank you so much, Jason. That's an interview with pianist Lee Shaw.
recorded live at the Rotary Club of Albany a couple of months ago. You can check out more about Rotary at rotary.org. This is the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This show is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free anytime you want it at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. My thanks to the members of the Respect Sextet for recording the theme music for this program. You can find them at respectsextet.com. They've got a lot of gigs coming up around the East Coast, and uh, you should go check them out. You'll find all that information at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel. He designed the Jazz Sessions logo. This show is distributed under a Creative Commons license. More information is available at the website. It also has a mailing list both in the email variety and the Facebook variety. You can find them both at thejazzsession.com. Thanks so much for listening. Please go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.